I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. This is an incredibly difficult time for the family. This week on KSL Plus. Our thoughts and prayers are with them. It's been more than a month since Gabby Petito's body was found. Our initial determination is the body uh, was in the wilderness for three to four weeks. Last month, the Teton County, Wyoming coroner wrapped up its investigation. We hereby find the cause and manner of death to be the cause death by strangulation and manner is homicide. Brian Laundrie is the only person of interest in Gabby's homicide. But as the FBI investigation continues, Gabby's death and her relationship with Brian are shining a light on another important and difficult topic. Unfortunately, uh, this is only one of uh, many deaths uh, around the country uh, of uh, people who are involved in domestic violence. I'm Matt Rascone, and this is KSL Plus. And this week, we're talking about domestic violence. The issue hits close to home. There were 35 total domestic violence-related deaths in Utah last year. 27 of them involved a firearm. According to the Utah Department of Health, more than 22% of homicide victims in the state in 2020 died in an intimate partner or domestic violence-related incident. Nearly 86% were women. I want to welcome everybody to the celebration of life of Gabby Ramos. Just last month, police issued an arrest warrant for a man accused of shooting his ex fiance Gabby Ramos, in Taylorsville. Pero este... He started knocking, then banging on the door. But we had our two nieces in the house, and so then my sister opened the door and told him to leave. And that's when he shot her. It was a matter of seconds. Everything happened so fast. It was so fast. Family members say, If you see somebody in that situation, please. He shot Ramos. Try to get help. After an apparent argument about a ring. Dating violence and stalking is a problem nationally, and it hasn't been handled as well as it could have been on college campuses. Three years ago in October, Lauren McCluskey was shot and killed by a man she had previously dated. Lauren was a student athlete at the University of Utah. On the anniversary of her death, <laughs> students at the U, Utah State, SUU, and more than 30 other colleges across the country participated in a memorial walk to remember Lauren. I know that this issue of campus safety is so vital, it's so important. And raise awareness about campus safety and domestic violence. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, there is help available. Utah's domestic violence hotline is 1-800-897-LINK. That's 1-800-897-5465.
education. So increasing awareness around the state about what domestic violence is, what it looks like, what the signs are. I talked to Liz Salas. She is the spokesperson for the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. What the resources are if someone's experiencing it. And again, you know, what we can do to prevent or stop it. I think it's important to say right off the top, there are resources available to those who are in an abusive relationship. Yeah, anybody who is in an unhealthy relationship, who's experiencing abuse or violence in their relationship, or even perhaps the person who's committing the abuse or violence, our intent is to end the violence. And in order to do that, we need to, we need to work with both parties in that relationship, or if there's more than two individuals who are impacted by it, all of those individuals, because we want to do what we can to help them have the skills to respond appropriately, respond in a healthy way when their emotions are high, and to uh, have healthy relationships. We've all seen the case involving Gabby Petito. It stole the headlines for weeks, and it's had this interesting effect, it seems, of shining a light on other missing people and on those who are in an abusive relationship, which many say the evidence points to for Gabby. What, what did you take from this case? Um, don't judge a book by its cover. It's a river of chocolate. So I think part of the reason a lot of people were so shocked by the situation with Gabby is that her online presence was primarily positive, right? Like the activities she uh, was engaged in, her even her pictures with her partner, they were all very positive in nature. They were out living what my, many consider the dream, traveling you know, the nation, seeing some of our most amazing national parks and sharing that experience with everyone else. And the thing we know about domestic violence is most of the time, the violent behavior, the abuse, the threats of harm, that happens behind closed doors. And so I think that's the hard part for people to to grapple is that they're seeing one thing and then having to understand that she might have been experiencing something completely different when the camera wasn't on. Yeah, we often see just the best side of things on social media, Uh, but how prevalent is domestic violence specifically in Utah? So in Utah, for the last many years, we've had a higher rate of prevalence uh, than than other states in the nation. We know that one in three women in Utah will experience domestic or sexual violence in their lifetime, and one in seven men. And then during the pandemic, that, that number was one in four for women nationally. However, during the pandemic, it, it mirrored what Utah experienced, which was the one in three. And I think, too, one thing to point out is, um, like, if you take the social media components, so you see social media, people look really happy. And some might say, well, what if my family member is not on social media or my friend or loved one's not on social media? But I think something happened. But how, how do I know? A lot of times it's because they stop coming to things. Or they might cancel at the very last minute with with what doesn't really seem like, you know, a a real good reason. And it might be because they're healing either emotionally or physically from abuse or violence that they experienced at the hands of their partner. So, you know, having conversations with people across the board, if you have instincts or feelings that something might be going on, if you can safely talk with that person and, and do so without them being around the abusive partner, 
which can be difficult because isolation is huge when someone's in an abusive relationship. Try to have those conversations, have phone numbers ready to provide them so that when and if they're ready to make that move, they've got the resources at hand. Gabby's homicide, of course, still under investigation. Brian has only been named a person of interest, but how often do these abusive relationships lead to death? So we know that in more than 50% of the cases in the state of Utah where a domestic violence-related homicide occurs, there's been a history of violence, and that history of violence has been reported to law enforcement, and not always by the victim. Sometimes it's by a family member, or in the case of Gabby Petito, um, you know, someone else reported seeing or, or hearing the altercation. So I think that's an important thing to note, is that if we see or suspect that violence is taking place, just make that call to law enforcement, let that agency get in there so that they can assess it, connect that person with resources and hopefully save a life. Is there anything else as you watched Gabby Petito's case unfold that was surprising or not surprising? Um, I think it's an important reminder that anybody can be a domestic violence victim. Abuse can happen to anyone at any time at any point in the relationship. And so, again, being there for those individuals, listening to them when they're sharing with you what might be going on and and not judging them, but instead asking what you can do to help them. And if you have those resources, connect them with them. If you don't know those resources, find them out. I think, too, it's important to share that um, this doesn't happen overnight. Like most abusive relationships, it's a very gradual descent. So you'll many people will, will experience for far greater amounts of time a lot of emotional and verbal abuse, a lot of gaslighting, um, financial control where they don't have any direct access to funds. They're having to ask for permission to, to use money, to go places, sometimes even to, to wear certain things. So I think kind of paying attention to those things is, is critical. And with strangulation, I also want to point out So that is the cause of death that was identified by the coroner. And the thing with strangulation is it it can kill someone immediately, but it also, uh, in some cases, there's hours or days that pass before the person actually dies as a direct result of the strangulation. So what will happen is their organs close down slowly. Looking for those signs, um, if somebody mentions in any way that this has happened to them, strongly encourage them to go be assessed by a medical provider because it is it is likely that they could have those very fatal uh, consequences if they don't get the proper help. And I guess I would say too, people need to stop being judgmental. However, we also need to encourage as many people as possible to notify law enforcement. I mean, um, Just recently in Philadelphia, there was that sexual assault on a train and it was 40 minutes before somebody actually, one other, someone else on the train actually called and reported it. So we need to report it. We need to not have that fear that by reporting it, we're interfering with someone's life or what if I'm wrong? Maybe it's not what I think it is. It's way better to get somebody in there and let them have those conversations and assess it. It's also safer to have a a law enforcement provider, a victim service provider, be the one to intervene and uh, work with the individual or family to get them to a healthy space. Are there other lessons that we learned from this national story about things that maybe could have been done better on the part of the public 
more law enforcement? Um, I think there's always room for improvement from what I saw with the responding officers and ranger from National Park Services. I think um, I think they did a good job. I was distracting him from driving. I'm sorry. They spent a good amount of time with both of them. They asked a lot of questions. They were understanding. They were patient. I am separating between you tonight. Uh, okay. they, they did what is is helpful, which is when people are in a place where they're not able to calm down or or see, you know, find a neutral ground. They encourage them to stay somewhere different, each of them, that evening. And one bit of progress that a lot of people don't recognize is that Gabby's home was the van, and Gabby stayed in the van. And for many years with domestic violence cases, especially with females as victims, they're the ones who are expected to go find another place to stay, where the abuser often is was allowed to, to stay in the home. So I think that's progress. Um, I think the other thing to point out is that the majority of people who access or seek support don't seek shelter. We do provide shelter. It is a very uh, critical need. However, in most cases, people are, are seeking other types of support. So it could be uh, assistance with a uh, safety plan. So they could have a safety plan to stay safe in the relationship, a safety plan for if they're preparing to leave, and a safety plan for if they do leave. Because we do know when someone leaves, there's a greater likelihood that um, they could die. And it's usually because it's been an argument that has preceded the that decision to leave, right? And and that is the same with homicides. There's usually an argument before a homicide occurs. It's not typically it's premeditated, yes, but it's not typically, you know, just out of the blue. There's something that that happens. So I say premeditated because many of these individuals have made lots of threats of harm or violence and including violence using weapons to their victim prior to actually committing the act. I was just thinking back on the numbers you mentioned, one in three. In other words, we all know someone. Correct, we do. We all do. And you know, I I was actually speaking with a friend this weekend and we were just talking about uh, a relationship that she had been in and she said, it wasn't until I got out that I realized how toxic our arguments were. And although uh, they didn't have physical violence, there was a lot of yelling and just unkind, very um, unhealthy communication. And a, a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people don't realize until they're out of it that what they're experiencing is not normal. It's not okay. And that they, there are other options in, out there for them. There are kind people. There are healthy relationships. And, and, and we want everybody to have that, right? We want that to be the outcome. We don't want a fatality to be the outcome ever. And then kids too, I think is another thing to think about as um, how intimate partner violence or domestic violence impacts children. We do know there are children who observe it sometimes on a daily basis. Again, many times the partners who are um, experiencing the violence might try to con- conceal it even in the home from the children, but we know kids can hear it. Um, or, or see it depending on what's happening. But that, that's another factor cons- to consider as well, because when kids experience violence, that's an adverse childhood experience that can impact their adulthood and, and choices they make as they um, come into adulthood. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think would be important to mention on this? 
I mean, one of the old, when I first studied social sciences, one of the things they talked about with domestic abuse or domestic violence is that there's, uh, it's a cycle of abuse. So there's oftentimes the honeymoon period where everything's really cheery, things are great. Then you'll get to the tension building period where things aren't so good. You maybe are getting blamed for the victims getting blamed for a lot of things. There's um, just, you can tell that things are about to, you know, explode. And then you have the battering or the explosion stage of the relationship where that's exactly what's happening. There's violence, there's fighting. And then to repair the relationship per se, they go back to the honeymoon phase where they're really endearing and buying gifts and apologetic, still blaming the victim. But but th- those are those phases remain in a relationship to this day. So I think that's um, that's something to consider. Okay. Oh, and then pa- power and control. I have to always include power and control because whether a relationship is experiencing physical violence or uh, emotional, financial, uh, verbal control and violence, it's always about power and control. So that is a primary factor. One of the things we talked about recently was somebody was animal abuse. So we've had, we had a pretty high profile animal abuse case uh, earlier this year with a dog by the name of Dixie. And uh, there was a proposal to push for Dixie's law to give more rights to the animals and to also help to prevent that abuse. But we do know, and studies have shown that people who torture animals or abuse animals are more likely to commit acts of violence against persons. And many times uh, an abuser will use the victims or the family animal as a, as leverage, if you will. So they may make threats that they're going to harm the animal or that they're going to take the animal from them. They might actually be physically abusive to the animal. They may tell them just like with kids, if you leave, you're not going to have the kids. You're not going to have the animal. You're not going to have all these things. So there's so many different factors that we could all be paying a little bit more attention to. And by doing so, we could hopefully intervene and prevent further violence. I want to end where we started. There are resources. There is help available for people in these relationships. Absolutely. So there are resources around the state. Uh, People can call 1-800-897-LINK. It's 1-800-897-5465. That's the Utah Domestic Violence Hotline or Link Line. They call it the link line because they connect people to resources in their community. They can also reach out to any of the domestic violence victim service providers in their community. All of these uh, providers have a crisis line as well. So uh, we do know during the pandemic, these lines and our link lines saw an increase of about 20 to 50% of calls, depending on the location. And that's remained pretty steady. So yeah, reach out, help is available. Um, There's there are ways we can help people that they might not think we can. Utah Domestic Violence Coalition has provided financial assistance for funerals, for moving, for a variety of things, counseling that help people find a different path or stay healthy and safe in the relationship they're in. And I guess the last thing I would remind people is these are adults and uh, we need to empower them to be part of, to be, to make that decision. We can't make the decision for them as to whether or not they stay in a relationship, but we can be there for them and we can listen and we can be supportive and patient and be ready to, to provide support when, when they reach out.
That does it for us this week here on KSL Plus. I'm Matt Rascone. We'll see you again next week.